And we, we find that the more power the constitution allocates to government during emergencies, so the more they can actually do, mm. the more people die. Mm. Uh, and if, if government needed that power and used it productively, we would see the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Drastic times call for drastic measures, or so they say. Government emergency powers have become a hotly debated topic in the post-COVID age, where state actors were authorized to take unprecedented action in response to the outbreak of the disease. Constitutional limits on power were temporarily lifted so governments could take decisive action in imposing lockdowns and mass mandates. At the same time, governments took this extra freedom to persecute political enemies and will reward their friends while neglecting to solve the problem. As a result, one must ask about whether these emergency powers are worth the risk and how do we construct better structural limits on government. Joining us today is Chris Bajornkov. He's a professor of economics and the president-elect of the Public Choice Society. He's the author of an award-winning paper on the historical use of emergency powers, where he concludes that they've had little if no benefit. We also cover his experience teaching and living in Scandinavia and what we can learn from their political and economic model. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome to the AIER Standard. I'm Ethan Yang. Today, I had the great opportunity of catching up with the new president-elect of the Public Choice Society, Chris Bjornkov, who's also a professor of economics. Um, did I say that right? Yeah, fine. All right. Thank you. Um, who's also a professor of economics at, is it um, Aarhus yeah. in Denmark? Who's, a, who's, all, who's the, you actually just won an award uh, today, if, if you um, want to tell us about that paper. Oh, yeah. I, I, I won the, the Dunman Black Prize. Uh, it's a paper with, with Stefan Vogt and Hamburg, mm-hmm. whom I've known for uh, I mean, almost since I was a PhD student. Um, it's come out of a long project that we've had on about states of emergency, mm-hmm. particularly constitutionalized states of emergency. And uh, the paper, Emergencies uh, on the Misuse of Government Powers, is uh, something we started doing uh, some years ago now. Well, we look at uh, natural disasters. Mm. So the idea is that if you have a constitutionalized state of emergency, that is supposed to give government more powers to act quickly and decisively to uh, avoid the worst consequences of, of, for example, natural disasters or invasions. Uh, and you should, you, you would think that if if those uh, constitutional emergency provisions work as intended. Um, Fewer people will die where you have mm. emergency provisions, and fewer people will die when you have provisions that allow governments to act faster and do more. Mm. And okay, so your paper is about emergency powers and sort of, I guess, the whether or not they work based on the constitutional limitations, the structural limits yeah, on power. Exactly. Um, so before we actually get into that, so I guess I think most of our listeners can already kind of see um, what the major event is that we're thinking of, i.e. You know, COVID lockdowns, yes. emergency powers. Um, but before we do all that, I think it's very interesting because your paper, this is almost like a political science, legal, with some sort of economics tossed in sort of paper. Um, and your, But your background is actually in economics. So I was wondering, um, did you always have like this interest in you know, economics, but also, you know, like a foot in the humanities and the political science and the legal sector. I, uh, so my educational history is a, a bit weird because I, I started at journalism school mm. uh, straight out of, of high school and didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So I, I, I spent a year having fun and, and coaching swimming and mm. uh, start studying physics. And from there, I kind of dr drifted into economics because I had a couple of friends who were doing that. And it, I realized that was incredibly interesting. Mm. Um, and well, during my, my master's time, I got more and more interested in, in development economics. Mm. And I don't think you can do that without also getting an interest in political economy of mm -hmm. choice mm -hmm. and, and the intersection to, to political science. So uh, uh, when I got to writing my, my PhD, uh, it ended up sort of halfway to political science. Mm -hmm. um, and with these kind of, of uh, topics, um, emergencies, for example, there's also going to be a, a legal component to it, mm. um, which is, is how I joined forces with Stefan Falk, who's specialize in law and economics. Mm. Mm. So that's really interesting. And you said your uh, affiliations are primarily in Northern Europe, Denmark, uh, Sweden a little yep. bit. Um, super interesting because I don't think many people really associate pu you know, public choice, free market economics um, with, uh, they, I don't know if we know much about what's going on in Northern Europe. So I was wondering what what, from your experience, like how is it studying uh, these sorts of topics or teaching it at, in your case um, in a place like that? Um, so we don't we don't have corruption problems, for example. Mm. Uh, we have very <laughs> mm. very limited corruption problems. Mm. Uh, the bureaucracy works extremely well, uh, but if you're in Scandinavia, you are in a, a region of the world with huge government sectors mm. uh, that very often don't work well. Mm. The rest of society is, is very productive and nice and works i mean everything works very smoothly mm. uh but it's it's incredibly difficult to understand <laughs> societies like mm -hmm. denmark norway or sweden or finland for that matter without a public choice angle so mm. with, without an, an understanding of so what why do we have these massive government sectors why why don't uh the, like the, the the health system the health system doesn't work particularly mm. well mm. um and and there's this ongoing discussion of how do we make, how do we introduce reforms just to allow the, the, the welfare state and its current form to survive. Mm. Mm. And so in America, there's a lot of, um, like maybe you can call them myths, yeah. perhaps narratives oh, yeah. about, yeah, like Scandinavian, uh, quote unquote, socialism, um, you know, the happiest place on earth, you know, you know, the... Most of the money goes into welfare programs and everyone's happy and they don't, you know, that kind of stuff. Is it really, before, yeah, before we get into your papers, are all these things that I'm just as an American kind of hearing in the discourse, um, what's sort of the reality on the ground? Um, the reality on the ground is that that both the left and the right in, in American politics can claim Scandinavia as their own. Mm. So we, we have these very, very large government sectors. So the, the overall tax take in Denmark is 52% of GDP. Mm. Uh, my marginal tax rate right now is 56%. Mm. Um, so if you look at that, if you look at redistribution, if you look at the this, this structure of the health system, for example, which is fully government paid, you pay through the taxes, it looks very socialist. Mm -hmm. If you look at regulation, for example, or the protection of property rights, uh, Denmark and Sweden look incredibly capitalist mm. and much more so than the US. Mm -hmm. uh, so... One thing that always strikes Americans as very odd when, when you think about the myths in the U.S. about Scandinavia is that we don't have a minimum wage. Hmm. Um, 
practically all labor market regulation is decided in negotiations between employers, organizations, and labor unions. The government simply doesn't interfere. Mm. Um, and it, it, it means that you have, on the one hand, a, what looks like a socialist government sector, and on the other hand, the rest of society is extremely capitalist. Mm. So how exactly did that, did that kind of turn out, right? So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. You have your productive economy so you can fund your welfare state. Um, but how did they actually arrive at that model? Um, it, it arrives, so the labor market institutions uh, uh, are the result of really massive labor unrest in the late 1890s. And uh, uh, labor unions and employers organizations sort of end up with a system of, of negotiations, formalized system of negotiations uh, with uh, also a dispute settlement system mm-hmm. that it's finalized in, in like 1910. Uh, and by 1932, during the Great Depression, uh, the Danish parties in parliament decide that we, we we're going to have a some of the beginnings of a welfare state, so a public pension system, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the Social Democratic Party gets. Uh, the right-wing parties uh, get the promise that government is not going to interfere in private business at all. Mm-hmm. And since 1932, all parties in parliament basically have accepted that that deal. Hmm. And do you think that's sort of exportable or do you think that's sort of a, it worked for a little bit, but it's honestly unsustainable? Uh, I, I think it's, the big problem is that we don't really know whether it's sustainable <laughs> because uh, there, there is a massive pressure on, on the welfare state. Um, and it, it doesn't really uh, give people strong incentives to work hard. Hmm. Uh, so it, it is a system that gets consist, consistently more expensive every year. Mm. Uh, but it also means that you can't really have that kind of system without allowing the rest of society to be extremely captured because the, it's the only way you can make the private sector so productive that it can fund a welfare state. Mm. Uh, and and there have been discussions for the last like 35 years about re- reforms. Uh, by and large, Danish and Swedish politicians have kept up with reforms, trying to make things work. Mm. Um, Sweden, for example, has a voucher system in their, in their primary school system. Mm-hmm. You, you can go wherever you want. Mm-hmm. And some people point to, I guess, uh, ethnic homogeneity as uh, one of the reasons why the welfare state is politically feasible. Um, like Here in the U.S., we have a lot of debates about the welfare state, yeah. particularly along, I guess, racial ethnic lines. So do you think the sort of, you know, Denmark is for Danish people, Sweden is for Swedish people, does that have any uh, sort of effect on the political su- sustainability of the welfare state? I, I don't think so. No, I, I think it, it's to do with the deeper cultural mm. uh, uh, factor is that Denmark, Norway, and Sweden are the most trusting places mm. in the world. Um, funny enough, <laughs> outside of Scandinavia, one of the most trusting places in the world is North Dakota, mm, interesting. Um, where, where I think it's about 40% of all, all families can trace their family history back to Scandinavia. Mm. Um, but that, that kind of trust culture makes things work. It, it's one of the reasons why we have so little corruption. Mm. Our people don't take bribes and don't offer bribes, bribes when they expect everyone else to do the right thing. Hmm. Um, and if people offer you a bribe, uh, uh, the reactions uh, from the rest of society are very, very hard. Mm-hmm. You just don't you you say no, but you, it, in Greece you might say no, in Denmark mm-hmm. you say no, and you report it to the police. <laughs> um, 
But that that kind of trust culture actually means that that the welfare state is protected uh, against a lot of fraud that you would see other places, and we we see other places in the world where they try to introduce welfare state policies. Hmm. It also means that the bureaucracy is, is clean and very very effective, and it means that you can actually collect taxes without a lot of tax evasion. So it's, it's possible to fund the system. Finally. It also seems to me that that most people are willing to redistribute to other people they don't know because mm. they expect people to be trusted, trustworthy mm. and not to try to get benefits from the government that they don't need. Mm. Um, but it all rests on that sort of bedrock of very high trust, mm. which means that you might be able to uh, export it to some places in the world, but other places in the world uh, would just be impossible. Mm. It's actually quite interesting in a sense that, especially, I guess, more since we're at a public choice conference, yeah. a lot of attention is typically given to interest group politics, the structure. And you're just saying that might be a, that might be a cause of, that might be causal, that yeah. might be important, but the culture really does influence here. Cult, I think culture does influence things here. And it also means that there's not one size that fits all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so. You, you have to fit your institution to the culture that you're embedded in. Mm. And I guess sort of slowly pivoting uh, to your research and uh, to current events, many people looked at Sweden as sort of the you know the proof that lockdowns weren't necessary. Sweden was had a different approach to the pandemic. Uh, do you think any of that has anything to do with Scandinavian culture or is there something else at play? I think um, the, the, the Swedish approach to it was based on trust. Mm. Uh, so under Tegnell, who was the, the uh, state epidemiologist, literally said that, no, 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 you, you can trust Swedes to behave properly here, not to take too many risks with the elderly people and so on. You can you can expect people to do the right thing. We don't need government intervention at all. Mm. Um, and a, a number of Danish epidemiologists supported that kind of system too, but Danish government didn't. Mm. <laughs> mm. And so when it comes, so I'm, my my uh, memory of the COVID lockdown policies is sort of fading. So uh, did Sweden take, Sweden, were they, did they stay open the entire time? Were there any sort of restrictions at play? There, there were a few restrictions on on, uh, on high schools, mm-hmm. but most of it was just based on recommendations. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no mask mandate. The uh, primary schools didn't close down. I, I was in Sweden in, when I said, just, September, October 2021, uh, everything seemed normal in Stockholm. Mm. We went to a restaurant and had a nice meal and um, nothing seemed out of order. Uh, Everything looked normal. Uh, And at the same time, uh, Germany to the south of Denmark was completely locked down. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I believe was Denmark and Norway also embraced lockdowns, if I'm not mistaken. Was uh, to some extent, yeah, not mm-hmm. not not as not as hard as Germany or mm-hmm. New York, for example, or California. Mm-hmm. But we did have lockdowns. Um, they were lifted earlier than most of the places, and they were not popular in the population. Mm. So. I guess jumping into your research, I believe you mentioned one about emergency powers, i.e. the uh, essentially what allows countries to enact a lockdown. And you talked about it. You have one paper that's emergency powers throughout history. And you also I believe you also have another paper on emergency powers in the COVID context yes. specifically. Yes. Okay. Um, so I guess very briefly, what did your research on the COVID lockdowns demonstrate? 
Uh, so we we had already written the other paper on, mm. on emergent powers during natural disasters, mm-hmm. and uh, then COVID happened, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we decided to have a look at so so what happens now with with COVID. Mm-hmm. Do the, do the same constitutional provisions actually affect government responses? First thing is we 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 could easily document massive misuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Within like a few months in the spring of 2020, uh, more than 25% of the world's democracies had violating, violated the freedom of the press, mm-hmm. arrested journalists and, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, which they were not allowed to do, if, even if they had declared a state of emergency. We could all see that, that uh, by, I think it's by the, May the 10th, 99 countries in the world had declared a state of emergency. Mm. Uh, we don't have any examples anywhere in history of so many countries being in a state of emergency mm. at the same time. So we could follow what they did. Uh, we could follow how quickly they went into lockdown. Um, and it did, it, <laughs> funny enough, it didn't actually depend on how easy it was to, to declare a state of emergency. Um, but the more power the constitution gave politicians during an emergency, the quicker they they, they Mm. declare one. Mm -hmm. It was about the power to government, not to uh, about anything else. Mm. So I guess to simplify that, the assumption, the general assumption is that we need emergency powers because sometimes we need to take quick aggressive action. Sometimes our constitutional limits on power and perhaps even our rights could be impediments to that. And perhaps it might be a good idea to give limited, a short timeline to, you know, to do whatever needs to be done. And that's sort of like a general assumption. And then what your research research is showing is that uh, politicians won't just use that power to do exactly what needs to be done in call day. They're going to do it. They're going to use that power to basically do whatever they feel like doing. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. So so in in the... the the paper that we get the Duncan Black Prize for, which is just basic on, on natural disasters since 1990, um, what we do is we look at uh, these natural disasters and, and how many people die relative to how many people are affected. Mm. So so you say it's more or less the same size of uh, a natural disaster, and then we're looking at the relative deaths. And mm. uh, we, we find that the more power the constitution allocates to government during emergencies so the more they can actually do Mm. the more people die Mm. Uh, and if if government needed that power and used it productively we would see the exact opposite Mm -hmm. and so what are some of these um because obviously maybe some people might say you know correlations not causation so what are some what are those what are the what, what are the some like the case studies that say, okay, not only do we have a correlation, but we have the government, we have, we have evidence that the government's using this for very unproductive causes. Well, um, the U.S. is sometimes a good example. So you, you have to declare emergency to get FEMA aid. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at Louisiana, for example, they've had floods and, and hurricanes hit, hit the state for, I mean, the last 200 years. Uh, and they still can't manage to to to, mm-hmm. to, to maintain their the dikes around Louisiana, mm. around New Orleans. Mm. So so they they get FEMA aid, they get money from the federal government in order to be able to cope with hurricanes and floods, in order to to actually build and maintain dikes, 
and that money somehow ends up somewhere else. Mm. <laughs> so we saw that with when Katrina hit in 2005, that that uh, uh, the dikes just break, broke down very, very quickly because no one had bothered to maintain them. Mm. And you even mentioned in uh, other countries, they the governments would go as far as to just attack journalists. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was really really surprised that even it, it, it happened in London, mm. where police tried to shut down a number of, of, of journalists. Um, very briefly in Melbourne, Australia, police um, uh, banned drones mm. in the city centre uh, on a day where there were massive demonstrations against the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, the courts in, in Australia quickly uh, told the police, oh, well, you, you're not allowed to do this. Mm. You, you have to stop. Mm -hmm. But there were these, these attempts at, at from governments and from, from police side to try to control whatever information came out of the media. Mm. And so what you're saying is, of course, maybe politicians will use their emergency powers to address the pandemic, address the natural yeah. disaster. And I guess the incentive to do, to do that is just because, you know, if they don't do that, they'll be kicked out of office. Um, but there's also an incentive to go after people they don't like, political yeah. dissidents perhaps. Yeah. Maybe, I, I believe in some countries, I forgot, I don't have the data on me right now, but I know in countries that are, you know, less developed democracies, more of these sort of quasi, um, like electoral autocracies, maybe countries with less robust yeah. institutions, they just used it to solidify power for the next, you know, decade or so. And that certainly happened in South Africa, for example, mm -hmm. um, where, where the government blatantly misused power and, and where the, now lots of media stories about how uh, how some of, of, of the provisions just ended up in corruption, um, mm. funding swimming pools and so on. <laughs> mm. um, but it, it is not just Hungary or, or South Africa or Brazil where this happened. It, it, it happened in Northern Europe too. Mm. Um, and... Uh, one of the big problems uh, here is not just that you is, you divert resources to other purposes. It's, all, it's also that uh, politicians have an incentive to be seen doing something. Mm. And the, the more the constitution allows them to do, the more they're going to seize that opportunity because it's going to look great in the next election. Mm. Uh, so it's what we call action bias. Mm. That, that mm. They, they would much rather do something Mm. That's just completely wrong than not do anything and be invisible in the media. Mm. And that's, I guess, sort of what uh, Andrew Cuomo did in New York. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm. yes. Yeah, he was a basically, a, I mean, a superstar and then completely out of the picture um, for the, I forgot, I think it was like the, there, there's like the sexual assault scandal, I think that really, but he was like, you know, the Democrats top person for his COVID policies and obviously something happened and all of a sudden he was off the in, in, in Denmark, we have this uh, journalist actually made fun of that. Mm -hmm. That uh, at the beginning of the, of, the, of the lockdowns, the prime minister uh, uh, chaired a lot of press meetings and, and was obviously in charge. And then when when uh, some of the bad stories started to, to occur with misuse of, of government powers and uh, uh, very, very stupid decisions, mm -hmm. um, Suddenly, it was the Minister of Health who directed those press meetings, and the Prime Minister was nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. um, so, one one example was uh, the 
Scandler and Mink. So Denmark mm-hmm. used to have a very large production of Mink. Mm-hmm. Um, and in late October 2020, uh, there were rumors that Mink might actually uh, be able to transmit COVID. Mm-hmm. And government decided that, well, we're just going to kill them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Uh, which turned out to be completely unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. But um, they didn't bother with that because they said, well, we're in an emergency, so we can do whatever we want. Mm. Uh, which obviously they can't, mm-hmm. but they did. Mm. So did your paper specifically about COVID, did you explore the like correlation between the use of emergency powers and caseloads, deaths, that kind of stuff? Were you able to see uh, the similar like causal co- correlation uh, that you did with the natural disaster paper? Uh, we, we, we could do a bit less uh, there, but w- w- what we could do was also look at the aftermath of, of, of disasters. Uh, and it turns out that in the aftermath of disasters, one of the common reactions is that you get more market regulation. Mm. Uh, so once the once the disaster is over, some of these this regulation and the emergency provisions sort of linger in, in in sense that we, you start to regulate markets and you don't deregulate again. Mm. Mm. That's I'm assuming because you know it's the regulations are sticky. Um, they it's easier to put the regulations in place and take them out because I, I'm assuming the government wants to just call it safe and uh, perhaps they enjoy the the power that comes out of that. That, that plus uh, uh, a classic public choice explanation is that once you have these regulations, special interests form around them. Mm-hmm. Um, the furlough schemes in Britain and in Denmark were great examples that you uh, you tried to support uh, some sectors of the economy when you locked down. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you then start to open up society again, it gets very, very difficult to uh, to stop subsidizing those sectors because mm-hmm. you know that some of them should have died. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, a, in a normal churning market economy, some of those companies go bankrupt. That's mm-hmm. always the case. Uh, and you prevent those bankrupts while you have locked down society, while you have a disaster. Uh, and they are now suddenly special interests uh, that do not want to stop those subsidies. Mm. So... When it comes to looking forward and using emergency powers, um, I'm sure that people, a lot of people would say, okay, I've heard what you, what you have to say. Definitely checks out. We don't want to give too much emergency powers and too much discretion to politicians because mm-hmm. they'll abuse it. Um, is there a way to balance, um, or I guess, I guess would you say that, one, are they necessary at all? And then two, if they are necessary, is there a way to balance the the, the competing interests of the need to take action with the need to constrain leaders? I mean, we, we have we haven't found uh, in when we look at natural disasters, we haven't found any any good effects. Mm. Uh, we have looked at terrorist attacks, and uh, that's a different ballgame mm. totally. So it seems as if uh, sort of more permissive emergency provisions. Uh, disincentivize terrorists from performing mm. attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in that sense, when you look at what we would kind of call man-made disasters, mm. um, we have an entirely different situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I think it, it it's basically to do with, um, with the fact that some of these emergency powers can prevent certain disasters mm. from happening. But of course, they can't prevent natural disasters from happening. So mm. in that respect, it's completely relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they do seem to work uh, to some extent against terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when looking at terrorist attacks, you can then talk about a trade-off between trying to prevent terrorist attacks by giving uh, government more powers in an emergency versus um, the fact that we, we know that it some tends to lead to more regulation, more repression, and so on mm-hmm. in most societies, including a lot of democracies. Mm. There, there is a political trade-off there. Mm. And that's sort of the, the ratchet effect of you give up some of your rights. So that, I, this was very, I think, very apparent after the 9-11 terrorist attacks yes. where you know, we gave up a lot of our uh, privacy rights, of course, and then lo and behold, a lot of those, the, the secret court systems that were used to you know, expedite prosecutions and the, uh, the Patriot Act, many of these provisions are still with us today. Um, so that's def- And obviously, we can go back and forth on whether or not it was necessary, how many terrorists have we stopped. Yeah. That's certainly a conversation. But that, that is very interesting, though, on natural disasters, i.e. COVID, flood, fires, um, name another disaster. These emergency powers, I guess, from what I'm hearing from you, is that they were useless. They were useless. Yeah, mm. we, we we don't see any evidence that they they saved any. any. Mm. Uh, it's basically the same with mm. COVID that that the lockdown seems to have not led to to fewer deaths. Then mm. um, they they may have led to lingering deaths now because uh, we we didn't save anyone from getting COVID or dying from COVID. Uh, but uh, in many countries, we now have a massive backlog of cancer patients who didn't get treatment. Mm. Um, and I think we we do see the same with with a number of other disasters that, that uh, they don't really work um, in in that particular moment, but there can be lingering effects. Uh, that well, for example, the, the, the special courts mm-hmm. uh, once they're there, uh, the political system will think that they're, they're nice because they they, they get things done, so mm-hmm. they want to get rid of them again. Mm. Um, it, it's a bit like like rationing after World War II. Um, I think as far as I remember, Norway got rid of their last rationing in 1956, mm. 11 years after the war, mm. because it was just a convenient way of government to try to control parts of the economy. Mm. And that also happened in the U.S. following World War II. There's this whole um, controversy about seizing steel mills during the yeah. Korean War. And essentially, the, you know, the, flaw, the idea was, you know, we... We nationalized industry during World War II. Like, why can't we do it again? Um, you know, and there's nothing in the Constitution. Well, there's everything in the Constitution says you can't do this. But, you know, like, war is war. You know, we, we need these powers. And look, we did it before. Let's do it again. Um, luckily, that was stopped by the Supreme Court. But that was, um, I guess, on that note, do you, have you observed any lingering effects from the COVID lockdowns, those sorts of, the, the sort of, um, yeah, the emergency powers used during COVID. Do you see any lingering institutional effects after? Uh, it, it's a little early to say whether there there are lingering effects, but there's certainly a, a sense that uh, both in Parliament among politicians, but also sometimes among uh, policemen and, and certain authorities, um, they would like to continue to have uh, surveillance powers mm. that they got used to during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there were attempts in Europe, for example, to to introduce uh, a, a sort of a, a vaccine mandate mm. across the entire EU, mm. which was the EU's way of introducing ID cards mm. in the entire union. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be a sort of uh, so we don't have ID cards 
at EU level, um, I think 25 of the 27 member states have IDs, but they're national. And the EU has, for a very long time, wanted to get an, an, an EU identity card and an attached EU citizenship. And mm. uh, for some time, there was this idea that, well, the, the, the vaccine card will be a way to get ID cards. Mm. Um, that, that was fortunately stopped. Mm -hmm. But what I'm hearing is that whatever um, doctrines or ideas that were introduced in the COVID area to in the theme of emergency powers has since been adapted to, you know, basically everything else. Um, I, and I do remember right, like right after um, COVID was starting to winding down, you know, all the, the chattering class, the journalists started advocating, just start, the word emergency just started popping up more and more, you know, like now we have a, a climate emergency, we have a, what, you know, like a, you know, name, name a thing that's political, that, that political idea is now an emergency, and therefore, um, so it's certainly an interesting um, carry-on effect from that. From your research, what, uh, particularly when it comes to the United States, what are some? What do you think were some of the most egregious uses of emergency powers that you've documented? Um, so we, well, it, it, it's difficult with the U.S. because you have you have fifty different states, so it, it, it's like a microcosm of, of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think one of the worst is is the, the evolving scandal around Twitter. Mm. That it it really appears that the the federal government tried to get Twitter to censor. Mm -hmm. uh, certain people like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, mm -hmm. Scott Atlas too, mm -hmm. actually was advisor to the president. Mm -hmm. um, it appears that the British government might have done the same thing. Mm. Um, so about 100,000 WhatsApp messages have been released from the, uh, the Minister of Health. Mm. And you can follow day-to-day -day politics in his WhatsApp messages. And, and uh, there are even serious discussion in those messages uh, of, of trying to uh, see if if they can if they can send a an opposition politician to jail breaking mm. COVID rules but it would make <laughs> to send him to jail because if once that happens he might not be able to run for parliament again mm. um, you, 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 see, you see those discussions around Matt Hancock the, the British minister and mm. his advisors there that, well, we're, we're in this situation now, so we can actually do what we want. Mm. Um, and and the big problem is, of course, that if if they get away with it, uh, there's, there's no one who, can, who are going to be able to guess what they're going to do next time. Mm -hmm. So you're right that, that uh, on the far left in Europe, people have talked about using lockdowns uh, to combat what they call the climate crisis instead. Mm -hmm. um, and it's again, that slippery slope that we, we have used government powers for something, which turned out not to work, mm -hmm. but we can do it again for other purposes that mm -hmm. have not, nothing to do with crisis. Mm -hmm. And then from a public choice angle, I'm assuming all this is essentially highlighting that government agents are first and foremost self-interested yeah. and, you know, you give them the power, they'll use the power, they like the power. It's... um. COVID is not any different. I think, yeah, because I remember there was this huge, like, effort narrative. This, you know, COVID is different, right? This is so different. That's yeah. why, you know, our principles don't apply. No. Like, climate change is just, so, name something. It's just so different, right? Um, and I'm assuming that's just always, but your research is just showing, no, it doesn't matter if it's a earthquake, a fire, disease, 
the, these principles of limited government matter all the time. They they do, and and no, no matter what kind of emergency it is, uh, it it opens the the the, the window of opportunity for for politicians to take more power, and then maintain it after the uh, after the emergency is over. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you you could say that it, it's a situation where where um, the menu of policy choices suddenly expands for a short while, mm-hmm. and. Of course, politicians are then going to try out the new policy choices to see if they can get away with that. Mm. And so, I guess from your research, especially the English example, it, it seems like in what we like to call, you know, very developed liberal democracies, um, when you give them, when you sort of open up those boundaries that we, these very strict boundaries that we've that we've labeled constitutional limits and what have you, when you remove them, they're not unlike any other politician from a, a, a country with less uh, protections on civil liberties and civil rights. Exactly. I mean, they, w- once they're allowed to do things, they behave just like Russian or South African or mm. Nicaraguan politicians. Mm. And f- the fun thing is that M- Matt Hancock, who, who where we, we got the WhatsApp message from, uh, he was considered just a normal politician. In- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we have, um, I guess, our version, Anthony Fauci. I'm sure the name's been tolerated about a thousand times already. Um, but AIER, uh, me, me and Phil Magnus actually were, obtained, were the ones that obtained the emails um, showing that he was uh, essentially asking for a coordinated political takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration. And, and Anthony Fauci is not even technically a politician. He's like a doctor who happens to be in the government. Um, so I guess if it, it can ha- if it happens in South Africa, it can happen here just as long as, you know, once our our limits on power start to mirror South Africa, lo and behold, people in power behave like uh, just any other country. The, 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 the COVID, the whole COVID debate has shown that politicians are politicians no matter where they are. Mm. It's a system that defines what they're doing. It's it's not that they're nicer in Britain or the US than in, in Russia. Mm. And I guess to tie it back to our initial conversation, do you think, the, um, you know, you talked about how trusting Scandinavians are. Do you think at all, did you observe any sort of difference on that end um, between maybe some cultures are a little bit more trusting, therefore when you remove the boundaries, they're, they're at least a little nicer than others? And I think what, what, what you can see uh, in general, but also in, in, in during COVID, is that uh, in, in high-trust cultures, uh, people, first of all, are more likely to just do what they're told. Mm. They, they follow rules that they think but whether those rules might apply to them and they, they make sense, so they follow them. Uh, but the, the other side of the coin is that in those kinds of cultures, when politicians are discovered to do something wrong, um, people react much harsher than in low trust cultures. Mm. So they're, they're more trusting, but uh, betrayal is, is punished much, much harder mm. in a country like Denmark and Norway, Sweden. Mm. So in a way, that's almost like a non-governmental restraint on power. It, it is a non-governmental restraint on power that po- politicians know. Uh, they, mm. they, they know that they can get away with much less in, in mm. Sweden than in Greece. Mm. Uh, and and he, basically, even though the politicians aren't better in, in Denmark than in Greece, uh, they, they realize that voters are going to behave differently. Mm. And that restricts what, they, what they're allowed to do. Effectively. Mm. So perhaps in the absence, let's say we 
you know, I'm sure the, the main implication of, of your research would be, you know, we need better substantive limits on emergency powers. Yeah. I'm sure that's a very obvious uh, conclusion. But perhaps what you just said made might even suggest, you know, if you can't get these substantive um, reforms, perhaps the people themselves should, you know, be a little bit more um, hostile when they get when someone breaks the rules like that. Um, you know, maybe use the press to uh, name and shame politicians. Oh yeah, what, what, what we mm -hmm. need is what James Buchanan uh, once he categorized public choice as politics without romance. Mm. <laughs> and I think that's what we need in this situation. Mm. Yeah, that's certain. Yeah, I've. I've actually never thought of that, but so I thank you for bringing that up right now. So it's like, yeah, I was wondering, like, okay, like, I highly doubt we're going to get much of these reforms patched just because I'm assuming a lot of politicians would be opposed to it. So in the absence of that, perhaps, you know, just normal people, the, the civil society can create uh, penalties of its own, like sh shaming, um, coordinated, um, like, yeah, just coordinated, like, bringing up how like abuses of power are happening, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That, that plus one thing that's quite common in uh, at least Denmark, Norway, and Iceland, mm. the western half of Scandinavia. Um, that if, if people simply don't see the point of rules, they're going to ignore them mm. and, and make sure that we, 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 figure, we figure something out around the rules instead. Mm. Um, so, so these highly law-abiding countries do have these particular situations where people realize, well, the, uh, the rules don't really work, so we're going to figure out something else. And they're simply going to ignore politics in that situation. Mm. And are, is there like a strong watchdog culture in Scandinavia? Are there like lots of civil society groups that will actively um, coordinate, I guess, like shaming campaigns or perhaps do these investigations on their own? Uh, well, there are. Uh, civil society groups in, in many, many different fields. Uh, but it, it's mostly the media mm. that, that does that. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the good thing about the Scandinavia is that uh, it, it's a very direct culture. Mm. Uh, so people might, sometimes people from the outside see Denmark and, and Iceland and Norway as very impolite countries. Mm. Uh, but it's Basically, because the, the the culture is that that if something's wrong, you're going to say it outright mm. and very very, <laughs> and that that actually makes things work. Mm. So I guess this this press in Scandinavia seems like is a bit more independent. Has if the government says something wrong, they're going to call it out. Whereas in the U.S., a lot of the press is pretty pro. Um, obviously, I don't want to get too into it. Maybe like uh, maybe showing my own biases, but you know, many people in America com complain that the vast majority of the press is you know left leaning. So if there's a Democratic administration, everything's you know all you're going to see on CNN is like everything's fine, right? And then uh, you have Fox News for the Republicans. So it seems like all the press uh, tends to be quite partisan. We 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 did have a period where the press didn't didn't really challenge the government, mm. uh, but the press itself has taken that up. And and now depicts that as a a period where they failed, mm. uh, and it, it's not a, a press that's so ideologically divided as in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, which basically means that that right wing, normally right wing uh, newspapers are likely to attack right wing politicians. Mm. Um, it, it, again, because that 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 is what they do. That's that's their raison d'être, mm -hmm. as you say, from mm -hmm. French, right? Mm. So, I guess, yeah, I guess I would assume in America, with the exception of a few news outlets, for the vast majority of, of, the, of the free press, they were not 
doing their jobs in terms of calling out uh, what what is bad policy or bad behavior. And I guess you're seeing a little bit now, like you know, they're doing they're doing a little bit of retroactive. And you know, by the way, lockdowns were bad, and like, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I and I guess that is uh, remains to be seen. Question of whether or not our press will ever recover to. And uh, yeah, I think the trends don't seem to be very good at the moment. Um, but that's certainly interesting and encouraging to see that uh, the Scandinavian press does have that sort of. Uh, I guess you can say backbone, right? I don't want to. Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 also there's one one other thing that that makes Scandinavian countries and Britain different from the US is that you have an elected head of state. Mm. Uh, we have monarchies, mm-hmm. so our head of state is a hereditary monarch, mm. uh, which basically means that 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 they have a complete they they don't have any actual power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all it all has with rest with the head of government. Mm-hmm. Um, but the worst thing that can happen to a Danish politician is that the queen says, oh, we think this is a bad idea. Mm. Uh, because uh, she, she's been there since 1972. Mm-hmm. She knows her son is going to inherit the throne. Mm-hmm. So she has a, a very, very strong incentive to behave in what she perceives the right way in order to protect her own position and her family's position in in the country. Um, so, so you basically have a completely independent arbiter of politics, uh, and most politicians know that. So, so they are a little careful about what they do, uh, because there is this independent authority in the political system who mm-hmm. might just once in a while say, "We think things have gone too far." Mm. And so I'm assuming what that does is it creates universal right and wrong. Whereas in the country like the U.S., you know, if, if you criticize the government, you're typically just seen as the partisan opposition, yeah. and it's just really it's kind of impossible to really all settle on what is right and wrong. It's just like I like the government if it's my side. I don't like if it's not. Uh, yeah, I mean the, the the system was intended to have a president who sort of was above everyday politics, but uh, de facto. Well, you have a president that's only backed by half of the population. Mm. Um, we have a, a monarch who's outside of that entire discussion. Mm-hmm. So I guess to wrap up what's been a very interesting interview, what are some key t- takeaways do you think that we should have going forward after the experience of COVID, the emergency powers, and especially after your research? I think, um, I think the, the main takeaway is that there are things that government simply can't do anything about. Mm. It's not that they did things in a, I mean, they, it's not just that they failed. They tried to do something that is logically impossible for governments to do. That's control the respiratory virus. Mm. Um, so I, I think, I think the main takeaway for me is that, that we, be, we've been reminded that there are things that government just cannot do mm. even in the richest, most well-functioning societies in the world. Mm. Chris Bajornkov, Professor of Economics and the President-Elect of the Public Choice Society. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Chris, if you want to give a quick shout out to uh, PCS and what our viewers can maybe access from your resources. Right. uh, The PCS is the Public Choice Society. Um, It's a more than six-year-old organization that uh, uh, is here to, to to make the case for political economy and public choice and that way of, of understanding politics and the world. Um, we have a, 
website uh, where you can see what we do. There's a journal called Public Choice mm. where there's a leading field journal in the field with most major names published in Public Choice. Um, but otherwise, it's very, very easy to find both me and my colleagues online on, on SS Red, for example. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today.